I'm Alex Mosed. You're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. And so today, uh, we're going to kick off with talking about one of one of my favorite topics, which is talking about how stupid government is. We've spoken about this AB5 California labor law. It's now in effect. Here we are, 2020. And we'd spoken about this many times. Here's just a little clip. Let's rewind time. Little clip talking about how bad this thing was going to be. One example of this is now the trucking industry is saying, hey, this legislation you just passed that might actually consider truckers who are contractors to also now be employees. And that would be, but by the way, disastrous for the trucking industry in California. Just to recap, AB5 was putting rules or it puts rules, not was, it does, put rules on refining and making a much more narrow definition of who can be treated as an independent contractor versus a W-2 employee with a purpose to classify more contractors as W-2 employees. Um, The excuse that Californian lawmakers made as to why holier-than-thou politicians uh, were, of course, you know, advocating for, for, for labor and putting labor first, as they always do, was because Uber and Lyft and the, the gig economy workers working on platform companies were being taken advantage of by these horrible platform companies, and the Californian legislature needed to step in and protect these poor souls. So they passed AB5. Uh, to basically say that to try and make sure that gig economy workers would be classified as W-2. Why did they really pass AB-5? Oh, because the government collects more taxes when you're treated as a W-2 worker instead of an independent contractor. How is that so? You get payroll tax paid by the company, and then you get income tax paid by the employee. Then you also now have other workers' comp and other Um, fees and programs that you have to also contribute to, like unemployment insurance. Um, So net-net, you're actually paying more dollar for dollar. For every dollar of labor, the government, through its various programs and, 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 you know, different channels, is collecting more money for every dollar of labor when it's a dollar of labor spent on a W-2 employee versus an independent contractor. The other part of it is the onus is on the independent contractor to pay their taxes, um, and there's no concept of a withholding tax, which which employers are are withholding and then paying to the government. So the government just collects less of the money owed to them uh, from independent contractors, just because that's how the world works. So anyway, government wants more people classified as W two employees. They make up all these excuses. The irony with the whole Uber, Lyft, gig gig economy thing is that. It doesn't even solve the two biggest gripes of gig economy workers. The two biggest gripes of gig economy workers are simple. One, I need some mechanism or some control or some regulation that prevents the platform from arbitrarily increasing the take rate. So if I'm an Uber driver, you take 20% of my fees as Uber, and then magically tomorrow, it's the holiday season, you take 25%. What am I going to do? Nothing. You got to pay an extra 5% basically an extra 25% of fee to Uber, and you can't do anything about it. So they have no control over the platform raising its take rates. Uh, That's the first biggest gripe of of, uh, drivers and gig economy workers. Second biggest gripe is 
the platform has now taken a, a penalty or action against me because say a customer complained about me, left a bad review, they kicked me off the platform or they're penalizing me or they're, my rating is low and I'm not getting good drive, enough rides. There's no formal way to rebut that or to um, get in contact with customer supported Uber. Um, there's no mechanism to have a third party review a, a, a valid complaint from a driver or a gig economy worker. That's the second biggest complaint um, by uh, uh, gig economy, say, Uber driver type workers. Does being classified as a W-2 employee solve either of those two issues? Nope, it absolutely does not do a thing on either of those two topics. What it does do instead is make every other independent contractor's life in California horrible. In that video I was talking about in December, we were covering how the trucking industry is pretty screwed because now if you're a trucker, you ha you're probably going to be classified as a W-2 employee. That's a pretty big problem. This article talks about all the other jobs that are also screwed. Freelance writers. So if you write 35 articles a year or more for a given outlet, you could do that in like three months. Um, write a blog post. Now you have to be classified as a W-2 employee. Have fun. Photographers, if you contribute 35 times per year or more for a given uh, organization, you now are a W-2 employee. Have fun, photographers, uh, who do like events, right? If you're an, a corporation, you do a lot of events. Great. Now you got to put your, your photographers on a W-2. Fantastic. Musicians. Same deal. Film and TV workers. Um, it's just, and think about, think about, this article talks about LA. Just think about the um, show business industry. Just all of these industries that I, I just, you would have thought that these lawmakers would have thought this one through. It's, I'm not even asking them to make, you know, two leaps ahead in terms of consequences. Ray Dalio in his principles book, has a great little flowchart. It says, does the employee make decisions based upon first order consequences or do they make decisions based upon second and third order consequences? Unfortunately, all of these Californian lawmakers are in the former bucket rather than the latter bucket. They're not able to think to the second or third order of consequence for these bills, these laws that they pass. It's pathetic. They all deserve to be doing something else for a living. That's AB5. Have fun with that, California. So let's look at Amazon and Alibaba. So Alibaba is moving into Europe. Um, we were covering yesterday on the show how Alibaba is trying to do Alibaba business in North America. I don't see it taking off or really picking up. Primarily, one big reason would be the name and the lack of trust that I think a business customer is, is going to place into Alibaba business in the United States, amongst a few other reasons that we spoke about yesterday. So Alibaba is trying to move into Europe. It makes sense for that to be a much more competitive environment than Alibaba being able to come in on Amazon's turf in the United States. Um, Alibaba is starting to go more into Eastern European countries first and then trying to get into Spain and, and some things like this that, that this article is talking about. Basically, with Alibaba, their their strategy here is to charge like half the fees than what Amazon charges uh, to sellers and to, to try to woo sellers to come and, and put product and put inventory onto the platform. Um, 
I think, I mean, I think they could be, they could be successful. There's a vacuum, uh, and there has been a vacuum in Europe of large tech monopolies, large tech platforms in general. That's why Rocket Internet um, and, and other kind of like incubator startup firms like that have been very successful in Europe because basically what they do is they look at trends in the U.S. tech community or the Chinese tech community. They copy those businesses and spin them up in Europe. And there's basically been a whole lost generation in Europe where because Europe has had a whole lack of any tech protectionism of any kind, well, they have like weird tech, you know, they ha- they have like GDPR, which actually doesn't help keep out um, foreign tech companies from coming in and, and, and obliterating any domestic startup competition. It just, as we've spoken about, it actually helps the large tech monopolies and hurts the in, the the up and coming tech companies and the incumbent traditional businesses. We also covered that yesterday. Anyway, I think Alibaba could be successful in Europe. Um, I think yes, they're trying to get supply here. The bigger thing for me is how do they get demand in Europe? Alibaba should have a much easier job of getting supply than I would say demand uh, in a market like Europe. Same thing in the United States. That was also my other issue with Alibaba business coming into the United States. So this article really just talks about um, they're cutting fees and 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 that's pretty much their mechanism to um, try and get businesses to come sell on Alibaba. Uh, a lot of these, some of these businesses in this article, a few of these fashion companies said, you know, Alibaba is too cheap. We don't want our brand associated with cheap stuff on Alibaba. Um, again, this just goes back to a demand thing, right? What kind of customers uh, is Alibaba going to bring to the table? I like Eastern Europe as a place to start. And then, we'll, you know, the real battle would be in Western Europe where Amazon is much stronger. But there's definitely a, a battle zone, Eastern Europe, uh, Southeast Asia, India. Um, probably eventually we'll start to see Africa more on the map here for um, large tech monopolies from U.S. and from China battling it out. Looks like now Eastern Europe is a new war zone between Alibaba and Amazon. Um, we'll see how that pans out. And uh, the other, the last point on this is that they have AliExpress, which is the payment platform, which uh, linked to Alipay and all these kinds of things. So what, what Alibaba is able to bring to the table is the payment platform, their logistics and fulfillment that they have um, through AliExpress and, and Financial. And are they going to be able to put those two things together? In my question, to solve for demand um, and put a compelling offering together for for Eastern European consumers, they could do it. They could do it, and there isn't any say um, very large incumbent domestic tech marketplace platform that's that's local to Eastern Europe, um, which uh, which would maybe have a stronger affinity or already have set user behavior expectations in Eastern Europe. So this could work. And this could be an interesting model for, to see Alibaba expand outside of Asia or Asia proper um, and actually into, say, the European continent. But I think North America is going to be much, much harder. Healthcare. So this is interesting. So in this is an article from November, 
says Donald Trump wants hospitals to be more upfront about prices. We just had D.A. Wallach um, on the show a few weeks ago talking about the lack of pricing transparency with prescription drugs. This was U.S. focused and how of about a three, three and a half trillion dollar industry for healthcare in general, prescription drugs are maybe 10, 12 ish percent of that pie. Still a big chunk. But the large majority of cost in healthcare is not actually on drugs and pharma. It's actually on services and healthcare providers, i.e. hospitals. And what you've seen in general over the past handful of years in the United States is you've seen a lot of consolidation amongst the healthcare systems. Um, healthcare system is just a fancy way to just say hospital. So you've basically seen these massive like hospital networks consolidate, do M&A, um, just merge and merge and merge on top of each other. And one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that they do that is because if, if you are a larger hospital system, particularly if you're in the Midwest and you're the one big hospital system in the Midwest, you now have a lot more leverage with who? With the payer, with the insurance company. And so there's a constant battle between payer, insurance company, and provider, hospital, healthcare system, right? And so if you are larger, now you have more leverage because you say, well, what are you going to do, uh, payer? There's no one else that you can go to to contract out services and rates. And um, you have less leverage to demand that I charge you less money, you being the payer, uh, the health insurance company. Me, in this instance, being the hospital, the healthcare provider. So what the Trump administration has been saying with Alex Azar, the uh, head of the HHS um, in, in the U.S., they've said, look, we're going to put some pricing transparency rules into place. What does that mean? It's now gone into uh, effect, this hospital outpatient prospective payment system ops with i guess another pt pricing transparency final rule which requires hospitals to post the prices for services that they privately negotiate with insurance companies specifically the rule requires that hospitals post charges for 300 common shoppable services and to update that information at least annually the final rule was not well received by the industry who promised to sue to attempt to stop the rule from being implemented this is a great rule. Pricing transparency is a great thing for the industry, for consumers, for innovation, for platforms. One of the key tenets and value props of any platform business, particularly any marketplace platform business, is pricing transparency. That's how you see these, these product marketplaces and service marketplaces go into these old sleepy industries, these old sleepy industries Every single one of them will tell you that the margin lies in the lack of pricing transparency. The lack of pricing transparency basically just means it's humans negotiating over price for every deal, which is ridiculous and completely inefficient. And the customer ultimately is the loser. And so marketplaces, by definition, are centralizing those products and services, are standardizing uh, the product or service, some platforms, when the product or service is commoditized, like Uber, 
where, uh, you know, getting from point A to point B, that's a commoditized service. It doesn't mean that Uber's platform is commoditized, that they have a bad business model. It just means the service that they are facilitating is commoditized. And the platform, as a result, needs to take the ownership of being a price setter as opposed to a price taker or a price advisor. When you have a more non-commoditized marketplace, uh, Etsy would be an example of a product marketplace non-commoditized. Every product on Etsy, Etsy is supposed to be unique and custom. Etsy can't set the price for that. Um, there can't be one standardized price. Just like uh, if you see non-commoditized uh, uh, service marketplaces that have uh, boutique services or boutique products like Airbnb, how do I price out what your home or, or your apartment should be rented for on Airbnb? You can't do that. Airbnb can provide you guidance to the consumer and the producer about what would be a good price to either list your property or, hey, this is a good deal on an apartment. You should rent this, uh, you know, this room. This is a good deal. But ultimately, the platform can't be a price setter when you have more non-commoditized type of inventory, either as a product or a service. So this is very good going back to this rule. Uh, this rule is very good for consumers. Because what it's going to do is it's going to force hospitals that basically have been playing the game of a lack of pricing transparency. This has been the whole game. This is why they do massive consolidation so they have more leverage when it comes to setting prices. Well, now some of the air in that balloon is being let out. I don't think the balloon's being completely popped, but it's certainly being let out by them having to disclose these prices. Now, I'm sure they're going to have a bunch of shenanigans because they don't want to actually post this information. So it'll be interesting to see how this is actually executed and if it's actually executed in good faith. I'm sure there'll be some bad actors out there. Um, but, uh, but for the most part, this is a really great initiative. And this is another reason why it's so hard for service marketplaces. Take a ZocDoc. ZocDoc is a marketplace for you to go and book services from doctors and clinics and these kinds of places. But ZocDoc is not able to give you a price for the thing that you're booking up front because there is no transparency in the industry for one. And then even if you did get a price, this is what we spoke about with DA about the pharma pricing, is then you have this whole phenomenon of list prices versus the actual price that you're paying because there's a bunch of these backdoor reimbursements coming from the payer and then the manufacturer back to the retailer. And it's this whole, it's kind of like a pseudo Ponzi scheme. And I actually think it's arbitrarily propping up the revenue of places like a CVS, um, a Walgreens, the PBMs. The actual money that they're selling the drugs, the, that they're actually getting these drugs from a manufacturer, when you take into account the rebates and all of these things, it's actually at a fraction of the list price. But technically, they get to book the revenue at a much higher rate, and then they get rebates on the back end. I don't know how the analysts factor that stuff in, but I would argue that their revenue is arbitrarily inflated because of these pricing shenanigans in the industry. Another reason why the pharmaceutical industry, well, I don't think the pharma companies really care that much, the manufacturers, but certainly the PBMs and the establishment um, don't want to change these pricing rules. So anyway, going back to the hospitals, 
Hospitals have the same thing, right? They have a list price and then they have the negotiated price with the insurance company. And that is what this rule is mandating that they disclose, not the list price, but the actual price they've negotiated with the insurance company. Now, certainly that helps insurance companies where you have multiple insurance companies negotiating with one hospital. Now, those insurance companies are going to be able to see what that hospital is is actually negotiating with all the insurance companies. So insurance companies are going to love this. Hospitals are going to hate this. What's going to be really good, and I think what could be really interesting coming out of this, is how marketplaces and new business models can be built or existing marketplaces or businesses that are out there like a ZocDoc can now ingest this data and provide more uh, feedback to the consumer when you're actually looking to make an appointment and book a service at a given uh, uh, service provider, right? Because you don't have any of that information. I'm booking a service here. Okay, maybe the hospital tells me that, you know, it's going to cost $1,000. I don't really know what the insurance company is going to cover. I don't know exactly, you know, okay, I have my deductible, but, you know, it's very hard for the consumer to understand exactly what they're going to pay before they make a booking. If you think about every, just about every other transaction that consumers make on this planet, you're able to make at least a cursory decision based upon two key variables. One is price and the other one is quality. And the consumer is able to make a price versus quality decision. Do I want to pay more for more quality or more luxury or whatever it is? What's my budget? Or do I want to go cheaper with worse quality? Roughly, right? These market service marketplaces in healthcare have been able to try and deliver you information based on quality, whether it's around user ratings or reviews or, you know, their credentials. Um, uh, awards or rankings, this kind of information. But the price has always been abstracted from that. So it's kind of like, nice, that's great. You give me information on quality. Of course, I want the best quality. But if you don't have the other metric of price, it's not that helpful. And me as the consumer, I can't actually make an informed decision. So I think this is going to be really transformational. Now, actually, let me take that back. I think this is a great step in the right direction. 300 services in the grand scheme of the healthcare industry is a drop in the bucket, okay? There are way more than 300 services that you can get done at a large healthcare system. This is a great step in the right direction. I hope that this will help trigger more pricing transparency, just like we need pricing transparency as we were talking about with DA in the pharmaceutical industry. Amazon's trying to solve that with PillPack, and, 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 and I think large tech monopolies are, are, are going to try and make a dent there. I would also say that the Amazon Berkshire Hathaway JP Morgan business, which is currently under wraps, um, if I was to guess about what they have up their sleeve, it's something in this direction, which is around saying, if I'm going to self-insure my millions of employees across Amazon, JP Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway and all the portfolios in Berkshire Hathaway. If I self-insure that, now I become my own payer. I become my own insurance company and I have millions of employees. I have millions of demand, right? Millions of people of demand worth of healthcare services and dollars. Okay. 
how could I now use that demand as leverage on service providers to post prices, transparent prices in a centralized marketplace like a ZocDoc? Let's say they go buy ZocDoc. And now all if you're an employee at Amazon Berkshire, JP Morgan, you go on ZocDoc. And on ZocDoc, if 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 you want to be a service provider that the payer, that collective payer will work with, you need to post transparent prices on ZocDoc. So now ZocDoc has information on quality and they have information on price. You as the consumer are now empowered. Certainly a lot more empowered than you are today. You may not know exactly what the insurance company is going to cover or not. But directionally, you're going to have way more information than you have today, which is basically nothing. And now you can start to facilitate transactions on a ZocDoc with pricing information. That's a very big deal, as I've spoken about. The problem is no one has had the leverage to demand pricing transparency, not even a ZocDoc. Maybe that's something, I'm sure it's something that the Amazon JP Morgan Berkshire roll-up is looking at. How do we get pricing transparency into a self-service marketplace that will now empower our consumers, i.e. our employees. Now, the power of that model is how do you expand that and open up that marketplace for healthcare services beyond just that community of, say, a few million employees? Um, And I think this is the nut for health insurers and payers more broadly. If you can create the centralized marketplace that has all of both quality and pricing information, can you, could Amazon, JP Morgan, and Berkshire open up my ZocDoc with pricing information healthcare marketplace and let other consumers who have health insurance companies different than Amazon, JP Morgan, and Berkshire use my ZocDoc that has pricing information, transparent pricing information on negotiated rates? I think you'd find a huge market for consumers that would want to use a marketplace like that. Um, And now you can actually start to earn transaction fees as the platform on dollars that are coming from other payers, other health insurance companies. And I think that's the holy grail. If you kind of think about health insurers at a super high level, they're kind of like old school analog platform companies, right? They have consumers that they insure. And then they have providers that they reimburse for the services that they provide. The difference is in the matchmaking of that, right? There's there's no um, end-to-end core transaction, right? It's very loose. It's kind of like, yeah, there's a network. Maybe we have some horrible directory that you can kind of look through and and see different providers. But the information about the services they provide, the quality that they provide, and certainly the pricing of it all, good luck. You're on your own. So they don't really have any matchmaking that's helping to connect consumer with producer, i.e. service provider, and bring these two together. When you can solve that riddle of the core transaction, bringing quality and price information together, there is not room for five massive payers, which is what we have today in the United States. We have more than that in terms of health insurance companies. But as we've talked about, winner take all, it's the name of the show, there's only room for two dominant marketplaces or platforms in any given industry. So I think what you would see is you would see a consolidation in terms of the amount of healthcare service marketplaces that would be able to come into fruition. Where have we seen this? We've seen this in China with Ping On Good Doctor. 
where they're on a tear. And Pingon is a health insurance company, and they've spun out a marketplace for telemedicine services, in-person services, and they've actually gone the next level, which is they're they're pretty awesome. Um, they've actually centralized the EMR data, and now they share your health record information across all the providers in their ecosystem. It's a thing of beauty. Another example of China leapfrogging the United States with platform innovation. That was a lot on healthcare. It sounds nice and dandy in my from my little chair. The actual execution and getting there is so hard and it's such a slog. Power to the people that are trying to do it. Um, okay, so we have some user questions. So we had one question. Thank you for releasing such valuable insight through your book, Modern Monopolies. Well, you're welcome. I've since been listening to your podcast as I work on launching my own marketplace MVP. Recently, you've stated two different contradictory remarks regarding which side to fulfill first. In my platform hacks, in your platform hacks, they can tell you make it video. You state the platform should concentrate on getting demand first. Uh, then you say different in the complimentary marketplaces are a sham video that platforms should gather small fragmented suppliers first. Which is it? Okay. Thank you for bringing this up. Um, so let me add some additional context in. Platform hacks fake it until you make it is saying when you're trying to solve for demand. So for example, it, it, I, the answer, the short answer is it, it depends on the stage of the platform entity. And these videos were talking about platform opportunities somewhat at different stages. So let me explain. When you are early on, kind of like with your, say, if, assuming you have an early stage marketplace MVP startup business, I would say you'd probably want to focus more on demand and, and the former, right? Fake it until you make it. If you, if you have a marketplace that you're trying to stand up, you're trying to get that initial kind of like product market fit, if you're getting that MVP off the ground, you really want to make sure you've got demand, right? I've got demand. People are using my marketplace. How you solve for supply, I care less about, right? Honestly, you could be a linear business with a plan to eventually kind of platformize your supply and use external supply. But you could be a, a linear business. And you, For example, if you have service providers or if you're like Uber entering a market in their early days, they would actually contract out with cars and drivers in a linear way, technically put them on a contract or put them on their balance sheet just so that they would have supply. Then they get demand going. As demand is scaling, then they can open up supply and build supply from third parties. So that was my point there on, on the demand. Um, I think I was also talking about Jet.com. When they started, they were selling, they'd, they'd list products that they didn't have. They didn't even have third-party sellers lined up for the products. They would literally go on Amazon, buy it on Amazon, and ship it to the customer. Sometimes it would show up in an Amazon box. Yep. So uh, Jet.com, Mark and the team there, they certainly understand faking it till they make it. And oh boy, did they make it. The other part of this, complementary marketplaces, typically the complementary marketplaces that I was uh, critiquing those are a lot of e-commerce companies. Um, no, well, 
there are a lot of retailers that have e-commerce businesses that are linear and they are now launching complementary marketplaces. So they already have a lot of demand. They already have a lot of customers. Um, and now they're trying to open up supply. But they're opening up supply in a weird way um, and not doing it in the hard way, the true way, which is to try to disrupt themselves. It's the innovator's dilemma. So if I'm a retailer or if I'm an e-commerce company and I sell products, Bed Bath & Beyond or Pure 91 or pick a retailer that's closing half their stores. Oh, that's right. It's like every retailer. Um, so they are saying, well, I don't want to sell Bed Bath products from other third-party sellers because that's what I sell. So I'm going to go sell complimentary products. The problem there is it, it actually goes back to the demand point. Bed Bath, and ba Bed, Bath and Beyond, if they want to try and sell TVs or electronics, they don't have as much demand for those products as they do bed and, and, and home furnishing, you know, home good type of products, because that's what a customer is coming to them for. So they're going to have a lot more demand for their core business's product spectrum. And they should focus on opening that part of their business up first, because that is where they're going to have more demand, which is going to interest sellers more. And these retailers are so far behind from where Amazon is at this point, you can't play any games. You know, if this was like 10 years ago, you could dip your toe into the water. You know, I could kind of like fail fast and like learn on complimentary products. There's no time for that anymore. That ship has sailed. Amazon's. 26 years into their business, founded in 94. You've got to jump whole hog into the marketplace if you're ever going to have any hope of being successful in marketplace as a retailer in any part of the globe, maybe save like Africa or some like emerging markets or something. But if you're in the US and Europe, certainly in Asia, if you are a retailer trying to get into marketplaces, complimentary marketplaces, it's not going to be the way to get there. You got to disrupt the core. And that means opening up supply, letting competitors list products on your site that is competing with your internal buyers. Now, your internal buyers might be buying stuff that's going to sit on your balance sheet for even longer. And Wall Street is going to kill you for that, by the way. I'm not saying that this is easy. But if you want to at least give it a true shot as a retailer that already has a good amount of demand, Focus on, on your strengths and you have a strength and demand, then try and get supply. Then once you get uh, an initial foothold in supply, now you could start to open up to other complementary complementary uh, product spectrums, but you're just not going to have enough demand in a complementary product catalog to get enough suppliers. And I need, I mean, hundreds of thousands of suppliers. I mean, millions of SKUs. A lot of these complementary marketplaces is like, Great, we got 100,000 SKUs. That's a stock keeping unit, 100,000 products. It's not enough. As we saw with Doug McMillan and Walmart, they added 10 million SKUs in nine months. Nine months. 9.5 million of those SKUs came from third-party sellers. Only half a million SKUs came from their internal buyers buying additional products and then reselling those Uh on walmart.com great question though and uh and and <laughs> thanks for trying to parse through my 
my mixed messages. We have another question about Shopify, uh, which was asking if Shopify is a platform or not. Shopify is not in plat. So you could have you you could have a part of your business which is a platform, but to be in plat, you have to meet certain thresholds. Uh, to be considered a platform business by quantitative metrics that look at how much platform revenue do you have compared to how much linear revenue do you have. And, and there are different ratios based upon the type of platform business that you are. So in the book, Modern Monopolies, we outlined uh, eight different types of platform businesses. And um, each one of these platform business types has different thresholds of platform versus linear revenue, determining if you are then uh, included into the ETF. Shopify is not in the ETF. Um, now, they do have a platform business, which is their app store. It's not a product marketplace. So they are providing SaaS software to merchants and small businesses primarily to go and sell products and have their own e-commerce site, right? Um, they, they classify their revenue in two buckets. This is their 10K subscription solutions and merchant solutions. Merchant solutions are revenues earned from Shopify payments, shipping, and other transaction referral fees, or, or they'll like advance you money. They're a lender. Um, so it's all those kinds of ancillary services to operate your business. That's the merchant solutions. Subscription solutions are more the uh, SaaS businesses, right? And so then the subscription solutions is primarily SaaS revenue. Um, but it, it also includes revenue from the sale of apps. And that would be platform revenue, right? Um, when we look at their revenue, they break it out into subscription revenue and merchant revenue. Uh, the problem is, I don't know what the split is between subscription, subscription SaaS revenue and subscription, you know, we took a 20 or 30% take rate on these apps uh, that, that our merchants were buying and paying third party developers for. Elsewhere in the 10K, this is their 2019 10K. So looking at the year 2018, they say they have 2,500 apps in the app store. That's definitely gone up since then. Um, I would venture to guess, so for Salesforce, for example, Salesforce has over a billion dollars in revenue coming from their app store sales. So that actually means they have like roughly a 20, 30% take rate. It varies a little bit on the money spent on apps from the Salesforce app store. Uh, that is one of the triggers to be included as a development platform business in Plat. So Salesforce is in Plat. Um, they probably do about $10 billion in revenue, Salesforce does overall. So it's roughly say 10% of their overall revenue is platform revenue. But it's a considerable chunk. And actually, for Salesforce, they attribute about a third of their EBITDA, their net income, from that billion dollars in revenue. So, you know, let's just digest that. That's pretty astounding from how high margin that platform revenue is. That means 
there's actually a lot more than just a billion dollars flowing from Salesforce SaaS customers to Salesforce app developers. A lot more than billion dollars in revenue being spent on their app solutions. Salesforce is taking in roughly a billion dollars in fees from that total amount of money spent on these third-party app solutions. And those fees are basically probably 90 plus percent margin. They basically fall almost entirely to the bottom line, accounting for at least a third of Salesforce's overall net income. It's a pretty big deal. Salesforce also um, has labeled that that revenue source, the the take rate from apps, as their highest growth uh, revenue opportunity out of the entire Salesforce business. So it's a pretty big deal. I don't think they don't, A, I, I don't exactly know because Shopify doesn't break this out, which means we can't include them anyway. B, even if they did break it out, I don't think it's going to be anywhere near even a 10% ratio or anywhere near a billion dollars. Um, or it's not going to be at the same level of degree, I think, in terms of the amount of money being spent on these apps and then and then the take rate that's coming back to Shopify. That is why, overall, I would not classify Shopify as a platform business. I do think they have a fledgling platform startup that they're trying to get going. But it's not at a significant enough scale that I would regard them as a platform company. Point two on this is another platform model, which would which would be tougher for them to pull off. It would be to be to have a centralized product marketplace to roll up all the stuff that their merchants are selling on their own merchant websites and then try to create a centralized marketplace that you could then have have um, consumers and customers buy products from the Shopify product marketplace, which would then drive business to Shopify's merchants. That would be a product marketplace model. They would need to really hone that into you know one or two specific verticals. You couldn't just launch that overnight because Shopify has so many different types of businesses using its its products. But that could be another. Uh, platform direction that they could take things if they wanted to. Uh, But that's a great question. We have actually gotten a few people kind of buzzing around for Shopify. Thanks for joining us today or this evening on Winner Take All, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks very much.